brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, thank you again so much. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving yourself up for us. Lord, we, we do want to express the joy and gratitude that you deserve, the praise that you are worthy of. And I pray, Lord, that as we look uh, to your word and to a Christmas story, that we would be uh, renewed in our gratitude to you, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, Lord, that we would, in the end, seek to glorify you and honor you in all we do. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, again, the Christmas season uh, can be a time of joy uh, for many. The lights, the parties. By the way, any, any of you go out looking at Christmas lights? During the, do you guys do that? I mean, we have a family tradition. We get some hot chocolate. You guys are better in first hour. There's like five people there. But um, get hot chocolate, drive around. There's some great spots to look at the lights. Family gatherings at Christmas, parties, uh, exchanging gifts, vacations, singing Christmas carols together. Just a lot of great times. But for some, this time of year actually can be especially difficult. Maybe the loss of a loved one comes to mind that Christmas is past, you're able to celebrate with, but they're not here anymore. Maybe this time of year with the season, the, the struggles with finances or broken relationships or some other trial that actually makes this time where it should be a time of happiness and joy, it actually makes it more difficult. People try to encourage you not to lose hope. They'll say things like, you just got to have faith or, or keep the faith or, or faith makes all things possible. And the sentiment's appreciated, but, but what do those phrases really mean? What is faith? Is it a feeling, a, an idea? Consider what these people had to say about faith. Poet Oliver Wendell Holmes said, It's faith in something and enthusiasm for something that makes life worth living. Gail Devers, who won Olympic gold, said, Keep your dreams alive. Understand to achieve anything requires faith and belief in yourself. Vision, hard work, determination, dedication. Remember, all things are possible for those who believe. Or author Pearl S. Buck said, I feel no need for any other faith than my faith in the kindness of human beings. What do you think? Does faith in myself really bring the hope I need to go on? Does trusting others, faith in others, give me the encouragement to make it? Is faith in something or anything, is that what's going to give me the strength to live another day? The first three steps of AA's 12-step program say this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand Him. Is that it? Is it... Having faith in some power greater than myself that will deliver me from addiction. Does believing that there's some greater force out there help me with depression or my financial struggles or guilt or sorrows or a lack of motivation or whatever's troubling me. 
Is that the secret? Well, let's just say that uh, our brother Brian Jolly, our resident spelunker here, invites me to go rock climbing with him one day. And, and as we get there, he, he, before we begin climbing up this very steep cliff, he, he ties a, some kite string around his waist and then he hands me the other end. It's in case you fall, Tim. So I, I tie that kite string around my waist as well, and we start climbing. And, you know, I can believe all I want that that kite string is going to hold me if I slip, right? But what's going to happen if I fall? Ouch. Brian will be watching as he's standing up there, right? It's not the issue of, of having faith. The key is not just having faith. The, the real important aspect of this is what is the object of that faith, right? What is it that I am trusting in? That faith must be something that's perfectly reliable, that is all-powerful, that is good, that is trustworthy. And I am not that. Other people are not that. Non-existent greater powers are not that. There's only one person who can be trusted, right? There's only one person who's truly reliable. There's only one person who is trustworthy. The God who made us, right? He's the only one we can trust in. Faith does not make all things possible. Faith in the one true God makes all things possible. And history's given us many incredible examples of faith. I think of Martin Luther, George Mueller, Hudson Taylor, many who faced insurmountable odds. Scripture also records many examples of those who had faith in God. Joseph and Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Hezekiah, Daniel, Hannah, So many who faced insurmountable odds and believed God through them and trusted Him. But there's another who stands tall among these heroes of faith. It's a young woman. It's a teenager, in fact. She faced an overwhelming challenge. She figures prominently in the Christmas story. And I'm talking about Mary. Mary. Jackie just sung a song about her. And I want us to turn to Luke 1, where we're going to look at her testimony of faith in God. And as we do that, of course, we need to remember Mary is just like everyone else who's an example of faith. She is just a person. She, as well as the others who have trusted God in history, were not perfect. They were not meant to be put on a pedestal and idolized. And, and of course, we know many in history have done this with Mary. Um, my wife and I were visiting Montreal last, uh, uh, last October, and we came to St. Peter's Basilica, there, which is an impressive, uh, wonderful structure, wonderful building. And in front of that building, right over the entrance, was this huge statue of Mary. Now, they did have a statue of, of Jesus, but he was inside the building in a remote corner. Seems that Mary gets often more attention and more honor than even Christ himself, the one who made Mary and redeemed Mary. Whenever an apparent image of Mary pops up, there seems to be a throng of folks making a pilgrimage to go and, and see this. In fact, I a few years ago kind of looked uh, at several of these. I thought you might find some of them very interesting. Uh, there's one that was found on a window of a business in Florida. Notice the shrine around it there. Another one showed up on a pizza pan about five years ago. These are not, uh, um, what do you call that with the adobe... Um, help me out. Photoshop, yeah. Okay, see, I told you, it's been a long year. Uh, here's another one found in a San Diego home on their wood paneling. Uh, another was a piece of wood that was purchased by a hotel in Las Vegas off of eBay for 100 bucks. 
Pretty interesting. And here's the famous tortilla that you've probably heard about. <laughs> now, this interesting one. This is a pretzel that was taken out of an ordinary rolled gold bag and turned out to be gold because it sold for over $10,000 back in 2005. In fact, that same hotel that bought the wood bought this. But they didn't stop there. The grand prize goes for this grilled cheese sandwich, which was sold in eBay back in November 2004 for $28,000. What I find interesting about this is notice there's a bite taken on the corner. (laughs) Wait, stop! Don't eat it! 28 grand. Amazing. But you know, I think Mary would be appalled by all of this. I think it would really bother her. And we're not going to give her that kind of attention this morning. But we do need to look at her faith. We do need to see her example of trust in God because it's an example for us to follow. And so if you are open your Bibles to Luke 1, I'm going to begin reading her introduction in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Stop there a minute. We see a time reference there in the sixth month. That's referring to Elizabeth's pregnancy. Luke had just talked about her and Zacharias in the uh, preceding verses. In fact, uh, she was married to Zacharias, and uh, you you remember the the story when he was in the temple carrying out his shift, and uh, the angel Gabriel appeared to him, told him that he was going to have a son, he and his wife, and that that son would be named John, and he would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Well, Zacharias, uh, he was a longtime member of AARP, and uh, he let Gabriel know as much. He said, how can we have a child? I've been on Social Security for as long as I can remember, guy. I'm way too old. My wife's way too old. Well, as a result of his unbelief, right, he was made mute until John was born. So the scripture says here, Luke says, well, six months after that, Gabriel is again dispatched by God, and he's going to deliver an even greater, more important message. And I want us to imagine that we are following him uh, from heaven to earth as he goes to deliver this message given to him by God, the message of the coming Messiah. And and as we are following him, we see him approaching Israel, which makes sense. We know that from the Old Testament, the Messiah was to come out of Israel from the Jews. And so as we're approaching Israel, we would expect he's probably going to be stopping in Jerusalem, right? I mean, that's where the heavies are, the religious leaders, uh, even the political leaders in Israel are in Jerusalem. I mean, this is the holy city. God's temple is here. His house is here. Of course, that's where he's going to be stopping, right? So as we move toward the holy city, we notice Gabriel is not slowing down. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't even stop in Judah, which we would have thought, well, that's the tribe from which the Messiah is coming. No, Gabriel continues north, and it appears that he's heading towards Galilee. Well, I wouldn't have picked that, but okay, maybe he's going to head to a prominent location there. Maybe one of the seaports, a Capernaum or something like that. There's a few important people there. These are, uh, you know, more well-to-do towns in that region. But no, he turns westward from the Sea of Galilee and he's traveling along the main roads. And then he deviates from the main roads that were there built by the Romans. And he's veering off a little bit more south. He's heading into a place that, did we see that sign right? He's, he's heading into Nazareth. Nazareth, of all places. I mean, Nazareth is the armpit of Israel. 
And this is where he's going. There's, there's no great prophecy about Nazareth. Bethlehem, yes. Nazareth, no. He doesn't even stop at any of the houses in Nazareth where the, the elders or the leaders of the city are located. No, he skips all of those, travels to the edge of town to a small shack and enters a room where there's a young woman probably doing her chores. She's not more than 15. This is the first person that Gabriel is going to tell about the coming of the Messiah. Gabriel, you've got to be kidding. Did you hear God right? Did you mix up the instructions? What are you going to her for? Of all the people to visit first and let them know about this most amazing and significant event in history, it's this young girl? What's so special about her? Why go here? Well, we learn that this girl is, of course, Mary. She's engaged to a young man named Joseph, an engagement that was probably arranged by their parents. They'll be married in about a year, probably have children, try to eke out a living on uh, Joseph's carpentry work. And then die in anonymity like most everyone else. At least that's what it seems. Why her? What's so special about her? Well, look at verse 28. Gabriel, in coming to her and coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, favor here uh, and the greeting actually come from the same root word we've been looking at in Ephesians. Charis, grace. That is to bestow an undeserved blessing or benefit. Now, the Latin Vulgate here translates Gabriel's greeting as, Hail Mary, full of grace, making it seem as if Mary was a source of blessing, as if she had gifts and benefits to bestow from herself. But the verb here is passive, meaning she was being given grace. She's not the source of grace. Actually, Gabriel's saying she's the recipient of it. And Mary was greatly disturbed by not only his appearance, but by what he said to her. Again, put yourself in her shoes. You're doing some chore in the house, maybe, or, or something, uh, and all of a sudden this super being shows up in your home. And he starts talking to you, and he, he says to you, he treats you like royalty, and says, you are blessed by God. You're thinking, wait a minute. You've got the right house. You've got the right person. I mean, this is a poor town. This, I'm from an unknown family. I'm a sinner just like everybody else. What are you doing here? And why are you saying that to me? I'm sure any of us would be perplexed. So Gabriel, seeing her confusion, explains in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? So Gabriel tells her, Mary, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. The one Israel has been waiting so long for. And not only that, but he is going to be God's son. Now, what's the first thought that pops into Mary's head? What are you talking about? How will this happen? I, I've never, uh, you know, I've never known a man, right? So I'm, a, I'm a virgin. You know, Mary had the birds and the bees talk. She understood how all of this took place. And she said, how, 
how is this happening? I mean, I'm engaged, but I haven't moved in yet with my husband-to-be. I'm not with Joseph. How is God going to make this come about? Now, the translation in the New American Standard has, how can this be? But a better translation really is, how will this be? Because Mary wasn't questioning the ability of God, as Zacharias was. She was just doesn't understand how. How's God going to make all this happen? Well, the angel answered her in verse 35. And he said to her this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. So what does Gabriel tell her? Mary, this will be a work of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you. He's going to overshadow you, a reference to the presence of God. And remember Elizabeth? You remember that older gal that she's never had kids and she's pretty old right now? And Well, she's going to have a baby. In fact, she's already nearing the end of her second trimester. God can do anything, Mary. And I want you to again pause here a minute. Again, imagine Mary at this point taking this all in. We'll see later from what she says in her Magnificat that Mary was a thoughtful young lady. She wasn't a whimsical kid. She, she had a pretty good idea what Gabriel was saying here, and she had a pretty good idea of the implications of what he was saying. Though she's just out of junior high, she's going to have a baby. And not only that, this baby will be conceived without a man involved. And more than that, this baby is actually the long-awaited Messiah who will save God's people. And in addition to that, she understood the ramifications of an unwed pregnancy. She knew that probably meant losing Joseph, which in fact almost did happen, right? If God hadn't intervened, Joseph was planning to divorce her. And a person that used to be stoned to death for uh, adultery, and though it wasn't regularly enforced in Mary's day, it would still obviously mean she would be considered a, a criminal, likely an outcast. But beyond all that, beyond the fact she would have a child out of wedlock with no mans involved, beyond the fact that she will be having the Messiah, Gabriel tells her, and by the way, Mary, this will be God's son. A Messiah? God in human flesh in me? Think of the pressure she was under. Think of what was going on in her mind. I really don't know that we can understand or really know what was going on in her mind fully. But then look at the profound response of this teenager to all of that in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. The angel departed. (laughs) To all of that, to all of that, an unwed pregnancy, a virgin birth, the incredible identity of this child, to all that, she immediately responds... I believe, and I'm willing to be humiliated, ostracized, divorced, distrusted, shamed, persecuted, whatever happens, because I am your slave, God. Do with me whatever you want. That is incredible. That is amazing faith. Don't let the familiarity of the Christmas story rob you of the wonder of such a response. Lord, I'm your slave, whatever you want to do. This is a girl younger than most of us here in this room, probably much younger than some of us here in this room. 
This is a girl just into puberty. And yet she is an example to us of genuine faith. Genuine faith in God. And from her response, I want us to see four characteristics of a God-honoring genuine faith. The first is that genuine faith believes the impossible. Mary believed God would do something that had never been done before. Yes, she knew of the accounts of Sarah and Hannah and and Rachel, that God had opened their wombs to be able to bear a child when they had not been able to before. But remember, they still got pregnant the normal way. Mary would not be pregnant in the same way in this case. And there were no fertility clinics in Nazareth in those days. And even if there were, God was saying, no, this is going to happen without any male seed from a, a human man. So even if a woman could somehow self-fertilize, she could only produce another female, right? Because she only has X chromosomes, right? Where are you, Mr. Dobbs? You, you teach biology or one, right? That's correct, isn't it? Right? So she only has two X chromosomes. A son requires a Y. God was going to cause her to give birth to a son. And this would be no ordinary son, but the son of God. But why a, why a virgin birth? Why did the fundamentalists in the early 20th, 20th century who were affectionately known as the fighting fundies, why did they make such a, a big deal about the necessity of a virgin birth? Well, there's a number of reasons. It had to be a virgin birth because 700 years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah said it was. Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. The Messiah had to be a man, a human to fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, which said there would be the seed of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. He also had to be a man in order to be a real substitute for our sins, as we see in Isaiah 53. He had to be human because the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7.14 said that he would be a descendant of David. But he also had to be God. Because if he were merely and only human then he would be born in sin as the rest of humanity, right? Psalm 51.4 talks about that. He would be a sinner like you and me, conceived in sin. And no matter how good a sinner, someone who has committed any sin cannot pay for the sin of another. And this baby also had to be God because in eternity past, the Father decreed that the Son would come to be our Redeemer. So these all demand for a human woman to bear a son who did not come from a human man, but from God himself. And so Mary asks, how is this all going to happen inside of me? And Gabriel tells her the Holy Spirit would come upon her and overshadow her and then she'd be pregnant. That's it. That's all he said. She said, well, okay. Whatever you say, God, whatever you want. You see, genuine faith believes the impossible. And notice how Luke set up this account. If we had read before the account with Zacharias, we would have, again, noticed that they're parallel in in a lot of ways. Gabriel is sent to both of them. Gabriel announces the birth of a son to both of them, the birth of an important son to both of them. He says in both cases that he would be great. Both the women involved who were going to have this child were not expected to have a child. Both were given the name of the sons, and both of them, Zacharias and Mary, asked a question. And here's where the two accounts differ. 
Because Zechariah's question was, how can I know this for sure? How will I experience such a thing? Because I'm old. And as a priest, right, he should have remembered those stories of Hannah and Rachel and Sarah. He, he should have known better, especially Sarah. She gave birth to a son in her old age. But Mary, this young girl, much, much Zechariah's junior, Mary believed because she trusted God's word implicitly more than what she saw or felt. God said it would come to pass, and that was enough for Mary, enough for her to risk her well-being, her life, even her whole future. Mary believed the impossible. How about you? Think about your faith. Do you truly believe God can do anything? Do you believe in a virgin birth and that the one born to Mary was indeed the Son of God? Do you believe that He's coming back again to judge His enemies and to save His friends? Do you believe in a heaven or a hell, that there is life after death? Do you believe that Jesus came to penalty, pay the penalty that your sin and mine deserves? Do you believe that Jesus is better than any substance, any entertainment, any relationship, any indulgence, any amount of money or possessions? Do you believe that He will take care of you no matter what, if you're his child, that he will never abandon you. Do you believe the impossible? Not only does genuine faith believe the impossible, a second characteristic we see in Mary here is that genuine faith shows itself in joyful and humble submission. Look at what Mary says when she visits Elizabeth in verse 46. My soul exalts the Lord or magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, generations will count me blessed. Stop there for a minute. This statement that Mary gives here begins what is known the world over as Mary's Magnificat. It's the first word in the Latin translation, the Latin Vulgate of what Mary said. Magnificat magnifies. And what follows in verses 46 to 56 sounds a lot like Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2. After God had given Hannah her son Samuel and she sang a song of praise, gave a song of praise to the Lord. And there's many parallels within both of those. And as we look here at at what Mary says in verse 46 and on, I want you to notice what is her attitude? How did she approach all of these thoughts? And as she goes to Elizabeth, was she moping around about it? Was she brooding over what was happening? Did this sound like a young woman who was just resigned to her fate? You know, okay, God, you chose me. I really don't have a choice. I mean, what am I going to say? All right, I'll do, I'll do what you want. This is going to be a huge sacrifice on my part, though. You know that, right? I mean, is that the attitude that exudes here from her words? Does she offer some reasonable explanations like, Lord, nobody's going to believe me about this. And, and why not wait till I'm married to do this? I mean, I mean, you know, who's going to help me raise this boy if I don't have a husband? But look at Mary's response. Joyful submission. Rather than worry about all the bad that can happen or, or, or what this event might bring about in her life or the thought that this never occurred ever before, ever This is what the thought that she was overwhelmed with. God is so great and he's choosing me of all people to serve him in this way. Her thoughts were focused solely on God. And again, note in verse 48, she refers to herself as a bond slave. Second time she said that 
Now, she wasn't talking about hired help that gets the nice part of the house. This is a slave. She said, I'm your slave. I'm the lowliest of servants. She knew that she, like every other person, was a sinner before God and deserved his wrath rather than his kindness. And, and that's why in humble submission she calls him her savior. There in verse 47. How about you? Thinking again about Mary's faith. Do you express a faith that is joyful and humble in its submission to what God requires and desires? Think about his word and all the things that he has within it. The instruction, the commands, the uh, direction that he gives us. When he calls you to forgive, to love others, to be pure, to not repay evil for evil, to not love the world, to submit to your husband, to love your wife, to obey your parents, to share the gospel, to treat others as more important than yourself, to serve one another. The list goes on and on. Do you chafe at those commands? Or do you say like Mary, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Do whatever you want, Lord. Because that's what genuine faith does. It, it joyfully and humbly submits. And that submission to God, though, it, it always comes at a cost. Third characteristic of genuine faith is that it's willing to suffer. It's willing to suffer. We talked about earlier Mary's acceptance of God, God's plan for her. Right? Would mean, what would that mean for her? Likely mean ostracism. Being ostracized. Um, the object of scorn, humiliation, and not just during her pregnancy, but for her life. In fact, in John 8, verse 41, the Pharisees told Jesus that we were not children of immorality, which implies that they knew about the unwed pregnancy 30 years earlier. And even just seven verses later, they called Jesus a Samaritan, which could be an allusion to a rumor that had been floating around that Jesus' father was really a Roman soldier. But in any event, it's not a stretch of the imagination at all to, for anyone, you know, to think about as Mary is telling others that God put the baby in her, how they would respond. What's that again, Mary? What did you say? God, okay, yeah, sure, okay. You need to see somebody soon. You, you need treatment. Right? I mean, you know how people would respond to that. Scripture makes it clear that those who trust in God and do His will are going to suffer. They're going to put themselves at risk. Daniel, what happened to him when he uh, went against the king's edict not to pray to any other god but himself? He found himself in a den of lions. Paul was nearly stoned to death, thrown outside the city for preaching Christ. Noah spent 120 years being ridiculed for building an ark when no one had ever seen a flood. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You remember them. They found themselves in a rather warm location after they chose not to bow to the idol Nebuchadnezzar. He threw them in the fiery furnace. God told Abraham that he would have to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Stephen was martyred for preaching Christ. He was bludgeoned to death by rocks. Jesus himself was nailed to a cross because he trusted in the Father. And many, many today and in history have suffered ridicule, imprisonment, torture, even death for declaring allegiance to Jesus. If you truly trust in God, then you will suffer hardship because genuine faith responds in action. That's what Mary shows us. Her faith was not an intellectual assent, but she gave response 
She didn't simply take in these facts and, and think about them. She responded to them. Basic idea of faith is, is to trust. Faith in God means to trust Him. Genuine trust in God means that you'll follow Him and you'll do whatever He says, no matter what. That's what Mary shows us. It's like uh, when you're first learning to swim, if you remember those days and your mom or dad's in the pool telling you to jump in. Maybe you had that experience and say, I'm here, jump in, it'll be okay. And at that moment, the child has to choose. Do they trust their parent more than they fear the water? My daughter, when she was about four, had such an experience. She was a great swimmer on the shallow end of the pool. But then the day came when a teacher said, we're going on the deep end. She was terrified. So my wife talked to her about it and encouraged her, trust the teacher, she's going to be there, and trust God, he's always watching. And the next day, she took the plunge, literally, into the deep end of the pool. But she was scared. Trusting God is scary. It's going to mean trials. It's going to mean difficulties. But God won't abandon you. He'll be with you. He'll give peace. He'll give strength. In fact, did you see how he did this with Mary? Gabriel twice says to her, you're blessed by God. He says, the Lord is with you, Mary. He tells her of the miracle that God did for Elizabeth and reminds her God can do anything. And then listen to what Elizabeth says. God through uh, God's spirit encouraged Mary through Elizabeth in verse 42. As Mary came and greeted her, Elizabeth cried out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary goes to her senior relative and receives that welcome. What great encouragement God gave to her. And I hope as we look at that, we'd see, you know, God will bring you encouragement just when you need it. Maybe through others like Elizabeth who will say what you need to hear to lift you up. And He will reward you for trusting in Him. And I hope as we've been looking here at Mary's example, you've been challenged to desire her faith. And do you know how Mary cultivated it? Obviously, faith is a gift of God. He plants the seed, but, but there's a means in which He does that. Do you know what the means were in Mary's life? How is it that she could have such confidence in God to to get this message from an angel and believe it on the spot and be willing to endure whatever God would bring? How did Mary get there? Well, that's the fourth characteristic of Mary's faith. Genuine faith comes from knowing God, from knowing God. Look at verse 46 again. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones And has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. And sent away the rich empty handed. He has given help to Israel his servant. In remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers. To Abraham and his offspring. Forever. Wow. 
That is a rich passage. How did Mary have such faith in God to say, I am your slave, do whatever you want? It's right here in what she says. She knew God. She knew Him. It's amazing to me to look at this passage from her, this young teenager. She knew the Bible. Every phrase that she gives here is either a direct quote from the Old Testament or an allusion to something written in the Old Testament, especially from books of Samuel and Psalms and Isaiah. And did you see how many attributes of God that she focused on and proclaimed here in her, her Magnificat? God is worthy of worship, she says. He is Savior. He is holy. He is great and highly exalted. He is all-powerful. He is merciful. He is just. He is sovereign. He's compassionate. He is good. He is faithful. All of that in those 11 verses. And it shows us Mary knew her God. And she knew His Word. She probably didn't have a copy of it either in her home. Those were expensive and hard to come by. But she paid attention in the synagogue. She listened carefully when her parents gave her instruction about who God is and what He has done. So when God declared this incredibly difficult task that He was going to bestow upon her, rather than say, woe is me, she said, glory to God that He, He of all, would choose me for this. Such a great God. She knew him. She knew who Gabriel was talking about. She knew God's faithfulness and his goodness and his justice and his mercy. How well do you know God? How does your knowledge compare to hers? I think Mary's theology is is deeper than many pastors. I know. Unbelievable what this young girl thought about and understood that this would flow from her mind and her heart. If I were to ask you an attribute of God and and to explain it and show me a place in Scripture as an example of it, what would something come to your mind? Could you describe how that attribute has impacted you as Mary did for herself? Does what you know of God consist only in information in your head or does it produce the praise that we see Mary give here? Such an example to us. An example of somebody who trusted because she knew God. I mean, how do you trust somebody you don't know? How can you trust someone that you don't spend time with? Mary understood and thought often about the scriptures. She knew who God was. She knew what he had done. She had no doubt in him, and that's why she trusted him. Genuine God-honoring faith can only be in the one true God alone and in no one else, and it only comes from seeing him, from knowing him. And that's why we need to spend time in the only book that he has written. We need to spend time in the Bible that shows us his mind and his heart and what he's like. We need to meditate on his character. Mary's example here shows she she meditated and thought about God. Pray, ask God to open your mind to understand him better and to desire to understand him more. Spend time with those who know and love God. Love for Jesus is infectious. They will help to cultivate a genuine faith in God and to trust him. One night, there was a house caught on fire. A young boy was forced to flee to the roof. His dad was able to escape down below, and and he was calling out to his son with outstretched arms, saying, Son, jump! I'll catch you! But you got to jump! But the, the son couldn't see him. All he could see was the flames and the smoke pouring out of the window behind him and was covering the region in front of him. And But the father kept yelling to him, Son, jump! You have to jump! 
But in his fear, he said, Daddy, I can't see you. To that, his father replied, but I can see you. And that's all that matters. You see, that's how it is with faith in God. Again, it's the object of your faith that matters, not just having the faith. All other objects of faith will eventually fail. But God is always there to catch us. The only faith that can do the impossible is faith in God. Now, in the end, the, the Christmas story here, it's not all about Mary. Though she gives what I think is one of the more amazing examples of faith, uh, challenging to me, <laughs> encouragement to me, motivation. She's not the main focus here, though. Did you see that word? It's repeated several times. Favor. The God granting favor. Again, it's the word that comes from the word grace. This story isn't so much about Mary's faith as it is about God's grace. You see, he showed favor to Elizabeth, right? He showed grace to her by giving her a son in her old age, a son who would be the forerunner to the Messiah, a man that Jesus would say is the greatest man who ever lived. God showed favor to Mary by having her carry his own son within her womb, being the earthly mother to the Messiah. And think about it. When looking into Jesus' face, we would see features of Mary there. What an honor. And when God showed grace upon Mary, He really was showing grace to us all. For God, had He not sent His Son into the world, Mary would have no Savior, and neither would you or me. If God had not visited a young girl through the angel Gabriel in a no-name town, she would have no Redeemer, and you and I wouldn't either. We would have no coming king. We would all be lost in sin. And I'm thankful for Mary's example of faith, but her example doesn't save me. Her trust in God does not cleanse me from my sin. Without Jesus paying the penalty for sin, Mary's faith would have all been in vain, and so would ours. We would be all relying on a kite string. So these words that were spoken to Mary by Gabriel on that day really were, in a sense, spoken to us all. Hail favored ones. For in that moment, God was doing more than a miracle of a virgin pregnancy. He was giving us a man who would be born and live a perfect life and give of himself on a cross as a perfect substitute for your sin and for mine so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have eternal life, so that we could be Adopted as God's children. So much more was happening that day when Gabriel declared the coming of the Son of God. But none of that comes. Forgiveness, eternal life, relationship with God to be His child. None of that comes without faith. A genuine faith. There's no forgiveness without being willing to turn from your sin and place your trust in Christ. To confess your sins to God. Beg for His mercy and forgiveness. And trust Him. Trust Him. Follow Him the rest of your days. There's no salvation without that. And to have that faith, we need to beg God for it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That is the salvation and faith comes from God. We need to beg Him for it. Maybe if you're in a place where, you know, you know the Christmas story, you know the facts of his birth, you even believe in that. You believe in the virgin birth. You believe that Jesus died on a cross to pay for sin. You believe he's coming back again. You believe in heaven. 
but you're just not motivated to have that joyful, humble submission to him that believes the impossible, that's willing to suffer. You don't have that drive to know God more and more, to love him. You need to beg God for faith, for genuine faith. Lord, help me to trust you for salvation. Give me faith to believe that you can do whatever you want. Give me faith that will humbly submit to you in joy and gratitude. Give me faith that's willing to suffer for you. And to know if that faith is real, you will see it in your life. There will be fruit. There will be action, just as in Mary's life. As Mary showed us, true faith takes action. Real faith from God and in God will result in following His Word and doing whatever He asks us to do and keeping His commands out of love for Him. The story is told of a highly skilled archer one day who packed out a stadium, a football stadium, and was performing great feats with his bow and his arrow. He was hitting multiple targets from all different directions and distances with perfect accuracy. And then at one point... In the show, he puts up several apples on a table and then he paces 100 yards to the other end of the football field, takes out his bow and in rapid fashion hits all five targets successively. The crowd applauds at this feat. They're amazed by it as the, the apple, apples are splitting apart and the arrows hit the, hit the wall behind them. And to their amazement, the archer then has somebody blindfold him at the same distance. Another apple is set up. The stadium Noise falls to a hush. The man pulls back the arrow, hits the apple again, blindfolded. And then several others, he hits again and again. And then he turns around and he walks back 30 more feet, still with the blindfold on. Hits another apple and another. crowd is just um, um, blown away. They're in a total frenzy at this point. So the archer then grabs the microphone and he says, Do you think I can do this again? Of course, the crowd screams, Yes, they want to see more. And he says, do you have faith that I can do it again, even blindfolded? Yes. Yes. Are you sure? Yes. They scream even more loudly. And to that he replied, then who will place the apple on their head? You really believe. True faith responds in action. If you do have genuine faith in God, like Mary, you who would follow Christ... God is handing you the apple. What are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Lord, you have given us a great example of trust in you through Mary. Thank you, Lord, for her willingness and even her enthusiasm to submit to your will for her life, to believe in the impossible and to, Lord, joyfully and humbly accept you're calling for her to be willing to suffer. Lord, thank you for her example of having this faith, how she knew you and understood you and trusted you. And Lord, we know that that faith did not come from herself. It was a gift from you. We pray for that gift, Lord, ourselves. And I know there are some here, God, that don't have that seed of faith planted by you that they... Lord, have not committed their life to follow you, that they have not submitted themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and cried out to Him for salvation and confessed their sin. And I pray, God, you would plant that seed now. Lord, that you would grant faith, Lord, in repentance. 
Thank you for this Christmas season. Thank you for the fact every year we can just be reminded and celebrate Jesus becoming a man and then reflecting on the life that He lived and the death that He died and the life He continues to live and offers to us to be with Him forever. And we look forward to His return. We look forward to being with Him. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.